everybody, it's Sasha and MK coming to you during our summer hiatus. We wanted to make sure that you guys didn't have to go without any content in your podcast feed from Identity Crisis. So even though we're not doing new episodes of Identity Crisis until the fall when we start season two, we want to present to you some of my previous interviews that I've done with some courageous women about the gender wars, about feminism, and about how they've stood up to censorious bullies, whether they were trans activists or someone else. So we hope you enjoy these interviews. We're going to be rerunning them from previous uploads, but they'll be here in your podcast feed for Identity Crisis. If you like these sorts of interviews that Sasha does with really interesting thinkers, she has a whole collection of these sorts of interviews with people on issues like gender identity and other interesting sort of culture war topics or philosophy. If you enjoy that, they're all available on the Plebity YouTube channel. If you like and want to support this content, then be sure to join Plebity on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. You know that you're not only supporting the creation of this really interesting content, but you also get everything a day early and you get access to exclusive content only for Plebity Patreon subscribers in addition to supporting the Free Speech Fund, which provides material support to people who have faced consequences for being canceled. So definitely check that out and enjoy these interviews. So Isabella, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you today. So I've been following your Insta for a while now, and ever since we met in New York at the event for Cancelled Women uh, last winter, and um, you are really a voice for women who are questioning trans ideology, which I think is so cool. And um, you're doing it all through the lens of being a doula, being a birth worker. So can you just start by telling us, how did you get, uh, how did you become a doula? What was the path that led you to that? So I got into birth work um, originally because of feminism, of discovering feminism or what I I believed to be um, feminism at the time. And so I had heard about women giving birth who were being violated and who were um, being mistreated. And I thought, wow, this this is an area of of you know my my interest that intersects a lot of the things that I've been thinking about um such as women's health uh women's autonomy kind of dabbling in in feminist theory um and also I I was always kind of self-motivated and self-run and I was an artist before I got into birth work and so I knew I wanted uh, to have a direct in- impact, I think also, and to be my own boss. And so um, when I got into birth work, I mean, I, I really didn't even know I was going to be doing births at the time. I actually thought I was going to be doing more postpartum work um, because I'd been doing a lot of childcare uh, when I graduated from college. And so I have no idea how I ended up where I am now, but it really, I think the original kind of path was to, to probably just to help families and to have a direct impact, this is particularly on women and mothers. And so that, I think that thread has followed me from childcare into birth work and now the work that I'm doing with, with trans ideology and exposing prostitution and pornography. Mm. And how long have you been in this field? So I started my doula work in 2016, 
um, and had been working with mothers, you know, since I was about 16, 17 years old, um, just in the form of childcare. Um, and so the trans ideology stuff, the, the kind of work that I'm doing now had been brewing for about two years, um, but it wasn't till I would say August, September that I, I launched something that was specific to the kind of the, the content that I was discussing on my page. Up until then, it had been exclusively um, birth coaching uh, and fertility awareness coaching. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm definitely interested to hear more about that um, in a little bit. But first, I want to ask you, I'm pretty curious myself just about what are some of the issues around birth that that first that you first noticed like i've heard some things i've read some things but i don't really know much about it so what do you see as some of the 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 problems that are happening with sort of modern uh hospital births so i think the biggest the biggest concern is the hyper normalization of women's suffering and i think through that lens everything else that happens in industrial birth makes sense. Um, and so it wasn't until I was a couple births in that I realized how desensitized I had become to women suffering that, that it wasn't immediate for me to even recognize what was happening. And so, um, yeah, I think the biggest thing with, with industrial birth is that the whole, the whole, um, kind of argument around why it's necessary and needed is because without it, women were dying in childbirth and babies were dying in childbirth, right? So this idea that industrial birth somehow has been the saving grace for women and babies, which we know can't possibly be true given the high rates of infant and maternal mortality rates, Um, particularly in the U.S., we have the highest infant and maternal mortality rates uh, out of any industrialized country in the world. So um, if we weren't seeing those outcomes, if we weren't seeing breastfeeding rates decline, if we weren't seeing uh, increase in postpartum depression, which is really just a reaction to having been abused in pregnancy and birth, um, you know, there would be no kind of examination over the system. And so, um, so yeah, the, I think the biggest, I think the biggest, the most succinct way to put it is that we have just become so hyper um, desensitized to to pain that so much of what's called prenatal care is actually grooming um, for the kind of violation that happens in the birth room uh, to both the mother and the baby. And so um that, that to me is the biggest concern that, that, you know, I think the kind of abusive births that I was uh, witnessing and actually taking part in um, is, you know, if you're trying to do something at the birth, you're already, it's already too late. And so I kept backtracking. I kept, okay, I said, okay, well, maybe there just needs to be more childbirth education. And so the way that I was trained and a lot of the doulas that I kind of started out with, we're very much interested in a kind of reformist model where, you know, you just do more education and you have more awareness and more informed consent and more birth planning. And, you know, which, which ultimately for me didn't, um, didn't feel true and effective. Um, And so I, 
um, you know, started reaching out to women who I saw that were building a new paradigm in birth. Um, my friend Emily Saldea is the owner of Free Birth Society, and and um, she really, you know, was a, a stepping stone for me to kind of come out um, as a radical birth worker, um, as someone who was saying that I'm no longer interested in, in being complicit in this system that I know firsthand is, you know, legally raping these women. And so I know that language might sound inflammatory but but that really is what it is and um you know there's there's nothing more kind of um i think indicative of actually where liberal feminism is in in the kind of conversations around women choosing um surgical birth right women choosing opiates right for their birth right no woman is born wanting opiates for their birth, narcotics for their birth, right? This is, we've been conditioned to fear our bodies. We've been conditioned to fear birth. Um, and so, yeah, without that kind of understanding of how we got here and the history of industrial birth, the way that women have been objectified and, and used as guinea pigs, um, you know, there, there is, there is really, uh, there is no choice in that. And so I think a lot of this kind of illusion of choice, um, and manufactured consent that happens in birth in particular can be applied to what we see happening with, um, you know, sex work is work and, you know, choosing our identities and mm -hmm. opting out as well. I think like there's just a lot of uh, cognitive dissonance in, in that. Um, and, you know, what I was seeing in terms of abuse is so specific and exclusive to women that then the idea that, you know, women aren't the only people who give birth, you know, that, that kind of the, all that slogan and that, those mantras and those mind spells um, were just kind of absurd. When you did know, you now. first hear that, that not only women give birth? That was day one of my doula training. That was day one of my doula training. That was the disclaimer given to all of us. And, you know, I'm from New York City and, you know, grew up in a kind of a neoliberal, predominantly secular bubble. And, you know, it, it just, it fit. It fit. You know, I dabbled in like kind of transhumanist, um, postmodernist ideas in college. And so, you know, the, the whole, the whole ideology, you know, it wasn't a far cry from where I had come from and, and what, you know, I had the way that I had been educated. It, it fit actually quite perfectly. So you were told in doula training day one, not only women give birth. And what did that mean? I mean, we might know what that means more because we've been steeped in this ideology now and speaking out against it. But what the hell does that mean to the ran to the average person on the street? <laughs> It's, it, it just, it doesn't mean anything. I, I really actually think it's the most meaningless thing actually one could say at this point. I mean, even to like untangle, it just feels so absurd. And it, it almost indulges the like, the kind of postmodern examination of well, what is a body and what is a woman and the whole thing. So, you know, basically the way that it was kind of, sold to me was that there are some people who don't identify as women and because of their existence we need to 
erase the words woman and mother from our vocabulary and our marketing and class material and exclusively use the words birthing person and birthing people. Right? It wasn't like, a, it wasn't a, a part of the course that said, should you come across someone who has extreme self-hate or, you know, what's called gender dysphoria, this is how you could refer them to these kinds of, you know, therapies or, or mental health services or whatever. It was just, there are people who, who don't identify with being a woman, yet use their uterus to make a baby. And then therefore we have to change the way we refer to birth in general. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was, you know, the, the training that I did was really trendy. It still is. Um, they have, they're extremely popular. Um, their marketing is extremely well done. And it just seemed like the right thing to do. Like this was the modern mm -hmm. way to be. And tolerant, would you say? Accepting? Is that Very inclusive, accepting, tolerant. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, what's interesting is there was a, uh, a, a woman in the, in the training who identified as, as two-spirit. And so she was a woman and said that we could call her auntie and uncle. Okay. But this woman had no kind of, like, surgical alterations to her body. I mean, she, was a, she presented as absolutely a woman, mm -hmm. you know, who rejects harmful gender stereotypes, you know? Um, and so I think even if there had been dissent in the group, which maybe there, you know, now that I think about it, I, I haven't kept in touch with all the women, um, but I, I would say even if there were any kind of dissent amongst thought, you know, what we were being taught, I don't even know that someone would have spoken out because this like two spirited woman was, I mean, essentially being tokenized and used as the like example of, of why we need to adhere to these like language protocols. So it was basically, it was made personal uh, due to her being there. So it I was like, so. You're, yeah. you don't follow it. Like you're nasty if you don't follow it. Yeah, and and at the time I didn't, I would, ne I didn't even consider not following it. Yeah, I think had had someone stepped out of out of line in the group, I probably would have been offended. I probably okay. would have judged them. You know, I I was really, I was seriously indoctrinated into this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember women that I was working with, you know, collaborating with you know, telling me about a book, I, you know, the author of a book I was reading at the time and just saying, oh, you know, she's transphobic, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember just gasping. Like, mm -hmm. oh, no! And just kind of putting the book away. Really, I mean, it was that easy, no explanation. And so I, I really understand the kind of knee-jerk reaction that women have to um, my content now because I, I really, I felt it very strongly. Um, which is why I actually feel like it's so important and, and has brought me to the work that I'm doing now, which is to be a kind of a landing pad in teasing out mm. the discomfort, you know, cause women are coming to me still thinking they might actually be secret bigots. Right. And they're unsure. 
and they're asking for clarification as to why their feelings are valid, why, you know, pulling their daughters out of um, a locker room that's now for men and women, why that doesn't make them, you know, a hateful person. Right. And so, like, I, I really can relate to the, um, the fear of, like, being on the wrong side uh, the yeah. fear of being, you know, really questioning, like, is there something wrong with me that I, you know, especially as I was kind of stepping out of, of the ideology and kind of promoting the ideology. I, I, I wouldn't say I was ever a trans rights activist, but I was certainly, I certainly considered myself an ally. Okay. And just to go back to the, the example of the two spirit woman, because I, I'm wondering, was she Native American or not? <laughs> No, she was, she was, you know, I think she was, I would have to, I don't know how I would verify this, but right. she, uh, she was definitely a woman of color. She was absolutely a woman of color. She was not um, a white woman appropriating to spirit. I'm, I'm nearly positive that she had indigenous, you know, Native American roots and maybe Afro-Caribbean roots. Um, okay. But but it was just a, a kind of an exam, you know, I think the, the kind of proximity of her experience, which is valid and, you know, with teaching trans ideology in a doula training, you know, I conflated the two. And mm. so, you know, the way I see it now is they absolutely appropriated and we see this all the time with trans ideology appropriating to spirit um, and intersex and, you know, all these other kind of like things that have nothing to do with the myth that, that, you know, sex can be changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. So what so, yeah. was the first little inkling of dissent for you? What was the, do you remember the first moment? Um, I think the first concern that I had was as I got more involved with kind of raising awareness about the harms of pharmaceuticals for hormonal birth control and the kind of lack of informed consent that happens um, and kind of the myth of liberation that revolves around um, pharmaceutical birth control, this idea that it like freed us. Um, you know, now I hold the belief that true autonomy and true freedom and liberation comes from um, understanding your cycle and learning your bio signs rather than outsourcing mm. uh, your reproductive system to a far- to pharmaceutical companies. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, there was a lot of talk around, there is a lot of, kind of talk around pharmaceutical birth control. And I hold this belief myself that, that um, right to shut off ovulation, to turn off ovulation, to turn off the reproductive system is, is as mo- I think one of the most anti-woman things that one can do and, you know, to talk about, you know, there, there is harm reduction. You know, I, I can see why one would take hormonal birth control as a form of harm reduction, but to kind of to have it be sold as something that's liberating and empowering um, really serves no one other than, than the pharmaceutical companies. And so, and the, the whole industry behind it as well. And so, it's interesting because we've seen a huge, we've seen a significant decrease in the use of pharmaceutical birth control. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I've, I've always been told that idea that the pill liberated women. I mean, that's people say that and I uh, believed it. And I think, but you're really making me question it. I mean, what's also made me question it is reading about how little research there is on the pill. I mean, many, many women experience horrible effects and like it actually kind of ruins their life temporarily, hopefully just temporarily. But, um, but there's very little research done into it and into making it better for women. But why do you think we, why do you think there is this narrative that the pill liberated women and if, if it has such a disconnect from reality? Well, I think, you know, like Andrea Dorkin says, like, we live in a woman-hating society. I think, I think there's, uh, there has been and is a kind of anti-natalist agenda. Um, I think that wherever, you know, industry can acquire money, they will. Um, I think that fear is used as a huge scare tactic with women who take the pill. Um, you know, if you think about it, it's absurd that, uh, you know, we, we can conceive maybe a couple days to a week out of the month, if that, right, where we're in our fertile window, whereas men can conceive every single day. They are fertile every single day, mm. right? So it's, it, it's, it's really strange that um, women would then be asked to take a pill when, when we are not fertile every day. Yeah, right? that we is. can't get pregnant every day of the month, right? That even that that myth alone is 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 strong enough to to put us in a place of fear where we outsource our um, our power and our authority and our knowledge and and it's I'm not blaming women at all. I mean, it's been systematically eroded from medical school. Right? Mm -hmm. Gynecologists and obstetricians do not learn fertility awareness. Mm. Right. We, we know and actually that the Catholic Church has done the most research on the effectiveness rates of fertility awareness method in particular. Um, and it's not rocket science. I mean, it's a method that needs to be learned and followed and has, you know, a margin for human error. Absolutely. There's so no essentially the method of um, of counting your cycle. Is that what you're talking about? No, so it's different. I think what you're thinking of, uh, you might be referring to is the rhythm method, which mm -hmm. is only has a 75% effectiveness rate. So the rhythm method is really when you're only counting your bleeding days. Okay. Um, fertility awareness method is a, is a quite, quite a scientific method uh, where one interprets their bio signs. So um, the, prim like the primary bio signs would be uh, cervical fluid, um, basal body temperature and cervical position. And so the interpretation and the learning of these bio signs, primary and they're also secondary bio signs, um, tell us right where we are in our cycle and give us not only information about, you know, how to conceive or how to prevent pregnancy, but just overall health and well-being, you know, understanding our cycles and where we are in our cycles and our um, learning how to chart. Um, can give us incredible insight as to our hormonal production. It's a diagnostic tool that can be applied to the entire body, right? It's the, our periods and our, our cycles aren't just this kind of like separate compartment that can then be turned on and off when we want it, right? It's yeah. this whole myth that we can even pause our fertility is, is absurd. And um, again, really only feeds into kind of 
not only big pharma, but, but big fertility, which is a whole other kind of um, predatory, really predatory industry yeah. as well. Um, okay, but surely the pill has done something for women. I mean, so w- before the pill, women had to constantly worry they didn't have any control over. I mean, is there truth to that? Like, did it I help think, some women? Well, I think it's harm reduction. It's a, it's a kind of harm reduction. I don't think it's liberating or empowering. I, I don't think it's, and I don't think, I certainly don't think it's optimal. Um, if anything, it's a band-aid. I think at its, its most benign um, form, it's a band-aid, but uh, you know, I, I just, I, I really don't buy into the narrative that the, the, the pill was introduced to, to help women. I think what would help women is to not put healthy people on pharmaceutical drugs. Mm-hmm. I mean, what other, in what other instance do we put healthy people on pharmaceutical drugs other than, you know, trans and kids? So I think it's just the... You know, I think it also feeds into the kind of the equality narrative too, right? The equality narrative says that we like should be like men, mm-hmm. which is to erode, you know, in one sense is to erode our kind of physiologic um, systems, which we need. We need them, right? We need them for health. We don't need to have a period so that we can potentially not only you know to potentially have a child like, this isn't a kind of like a child um a pregnancy focused issue even it's it's just a matter of overall health and well-being and so okay yes maybe the uh, a woman who's having debilitating cramps no longer has those cramps because she's taking the pill but that's again that's harm reduction that's a actually in that case i wouldn't say harm reduction i would call that just a band-aid um so that she can function and move through the world and get her shit done um, but it doesn't address the fact that she has underlying issues mm-hmm. Interesting. that will only increase in, um, in their, uh, in its strength, you know, in its kind of pervasiveness, the longer it's suppressed. Mm-hmm. So the whole narrative around the pill is that it's there to regulate us mm-hmm. as if we need to be regulated. But what it actually does is it, it completely shuts off, um, our hormonal production and, and, and specifically ovulation. You mentioned the idea of being separate from your body. So that brings us a little bit more back into the trans territory. So tell us more about this idea of being at home in our body or rejecting our body as sort of a, a separate entity from ourselves. Yeah, so, so one of the like, principles behind, you know, the wise woman tradition, you know, for example, is, is to nourish, right? It moves away from the scientific or the heroic model that, that kind of poses the idea that, that, that we need to be saved, that we are inherently flawed, that we need fixing. And so the wise woman tradition, what it, what it, what it does is it says we are already perfectly whole. And we just need nourishment, right? We need love. We need a nourishment, right? We need to kind of feed what's already here. And so this, you know, this is, you know, with fertility awareness method, it's all about embodiment. It's all about becoming literate with your bio signs. So first you learn your bio signs so that you can interpret what's happening and then to then make, you know, informed decisions about your body. Um, 
And if you do seek out, you know, allopathic medicine, that you're coming as an authority on your body and your well-being rather than as a kind of a passive consumer. Um, and, and so, yeah, kind of taking back your authority, taking back your autonomy and power as a woman, which is just inherent, right? We, we never gave it away. It was taken away. Right? Women didn't get together and say, yeah, we're, we're just going to like give all our birthing, you know, our most like sacred rites of passage, you know, like our first periods and having babies, you know, we're just going to, and death, we're just going to like pass it off to the, these strangers in the sterile like prison, essentially, right? We didn't get together and say that it was systematically taken away. So um, when I was getting, yeah, more into fertility awareness, I just thought, wow, this is amazing, and it all resonated, and kind of coming back into your body. And then the same women I was, you know, teaching with and leading these workshops with were simultaneously kind of denouncing, you know, pharmaceutical birth control and then praising the affirmative care model, which they didn't really have the language for at the time, but which would now be considered the affirmative care model, which is, you know, just affirming anyone and everyone who says that they're trans. Okay. And, you know, affirming everything they need to do to get to being trans. I remember one woman in particular who has since, like, sent me all sorts of emails, like, asking me to remove any mention of their company from my... Because I used to teach with this organization, and I remember her sending around fundraisers for double mastectomies. And I just, that, that was like one of my like moments, you know, you asked what, what kind of one of my moments and that was one of them where I just thought this is, this doesn't make, this doesn't, this doesn't make sense. Why, why would this be okay? But pharmaceutical birth control is not. And, and so, yeah. What was the reaction? What was it like when you first started to voice those concerns? Um, just, I, I wouldn't say I kind of eased up to it. I think, I think at one point, it's a good question. I would say mostly just in the form of emails, you know, we've heard that you've become very hateful and, and we hope that you, you know, regain your compassion someday and that, um, things like just kind of emails and messages like that. And I would hear, I would hear around from other people, oh, this person came to a workshop and was crying because they said, uh, your email, your, your e-newsletter traumatized them. What did your what did your newsletter say that was so traumatic? <laughs> I think that one was probably in reference to the sports stuff. Okay. Yeah, I know people get it's so funny. I naively thought that when I started talking about men competing against women in sports that that would be kind of the aha moment and that would like kind of on, you know, that would like flip a switch. Yeah. I, I really, I naively thought that this would be the thing that would kind of flip for people. And I think it has, I think it, it has for some, but um, for others, it's just, it's just, it's it, it, uh, to, to admit that there's something fishy about men competing against women in sports would mean to question, I think the entire, the entire ideology. Right. And you would have to question that trans women are women. Right, of course, which is the, you know, mm -hmm. the, 
the most like blasphemous thing you can say. Right. Um, and what circles. do you, um, so explain that. So to people who don't actually know yet about this, what's the issue? Why, why are you saying men and women sports? Like tell us what's going on with that. So men and women are born with different physiologic capabilities, right? We, we just are, you know, that doesn't mean that there isn't some large woman who could dominate a small man in a particular sporting event, event. but on, on the whole, you know, men have um, more capacity for, for muscle mass, um, uh, you know, their bone structure is more apt to compete, uh, to dominate women. Uh, grip strength, I mean, speed. It's just kind of all around. I would, I don't know, there might be one sporting event where women might slightly be, have some kind of advantage, but on the whole, right, this was the purpose of sex segregate, segregated sports is that we recognize that men and women, that women are inferior to men physically. You know, not emotionally, not mentally, not intellectually, not spiritually, physically. And acknowledging this is, is really fundamental to our protection. And so I had a conversation about this with Rhea and Riley, who's like a radical, she's a radical feminist writer. And we got into, you know, just how the, the equality narrative in particular has effectively undermined biological reality, right? That, that it is unpopular to say in liberal feminist circles that men are stronger than women, right? Which only means what it means. It only means that they have a physical advantage over us, right? Which right. is so obvious. And I, I think women know this on, on the most like innate levels, right? We, we act differently when we're around men. Um, we would have a very different experience if we were the only woman in an all-male bathroom, right? We'd have a different experience if we were expecting to have a one-on-one -on -one session with a woman and we walked in and it was a man, whether that's for a massage or for hair removal or therapy or whatever. If you're expecting a woman, you're walking into something. You're walking in with a set of expectations about your physical safety, right? It doesn't mean that every man is violent. And it certainly doesn't mean that every man who identifies as a woman is violent, but it means that we have to have the same discernment for a man who calls himself a man as we would for a man who calls himself a woman. This idea that men can become women is, is just so absurd. And um, yeah, even the word transition, I, I have such issue with because it, it, it per just promotes an ideology. It promotes something that isn't true. And, and I still use the word to just be able to talk about what's going on, but um, men cannot become women and women cannot become men. Men can get breast implants and get castrated and, you know, have a cavity inside of themselves. Um, and they can take estrogen and they can do voice training and they can have cosmetic surgery. But none of that turns them into women. And the same goes for women 
right? Women cannot become men no matter how much testosterone they take. And um, that's an incredibly hateful thing to say. Just kidding. Obviously, I'm being facetious, <laughs> but that's what people, that's the response, right? So why is that considered hateful? That is a statement of fact, right? Why is that so hurtful to people? Um, is it mean? Is it, I mean, is it coming from a mean place? Do you, you, how do you feel about trans individuals? No, I think, I think trans individuals, um, I actually, I relate, obviously I relate to women. I relate to the women who hate their bodies and, and want to self-harm. I think most women can relate to that experience. Wait, um, every time I hear someone say that I could never know, you know, because I'm not trans or that we can never know. I, I, I just have to laugh because women really are the experts on self-harm um, as evidenced by the increasing rates of women who are going through with gender reassignment surgery. So, um, no, I, I have an incredible amount of empathy for a woman who feels so victimized by being a part of the female sex class that she would then choose to opt out. I mean, could you hate being a woman more than putting all your effort and time and energy into pretending that you're not? I mean, that is, it is, it's heartbreaking. It is, it's, it's so horrible. And I think most, I know a lot of women who have said to me, had they had the opportunity to transition when they were adolescents, they absolutely would have, right? We didn't, it wasn't a thing when I was a teenager. Um, you know, it was more in vogue to starve yourself and cut yourself. And um, yeah, I mean, that, that, was, that was what most of my friends were doing. You know, some it's like drug use, you know, it, but if someone had said, you know, you can just avoid all harassment, you know, and we're talking about pedophiles here. We're not, you know, when, when we're talking about harassment of young girls, we're actually, what we're actually referring to is pedophilia, right? The fact that I, from age 10, had an awareness over the way that men looked at me on the street, right? That's, that's not, a, that's not only a woman's issue, but this is, this is a, this is an issue of pedophilia. And so, um, yeah, I think the, the, yeah, the desire to want to avoid that, get out of that. Um, you know, I've spoken to a wonderful, uh, brilliant woman who, who is detransitioned now, who talks about, you know, the kind of, um, the, the euphoria that she experienced when taking testosterone, how bold and courageous she felt, right? And, and, and the subtext is that, of that is you know, that women are not socialized to be bold and courageous. And so she was able to come out of her shell and like talk to people and be confident when she presented as a man, you know, mm -hmm. and that there's just something so sad about that, that that's yeah. what it would take to, 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 to help a woman feel confident to, to pretend to be a man. And so, um, yeah, I'm, the language that I use is really, really direct because I, I, I just don't want to, um, I just don't, I do not subscribe to trans ideology anymore. And every word that we use is, uh, you know, a, a chance to, um, 
I think really send a message. And so I, I, I try to be as direct now as possible. And, you know, it's, it's the, the, the people who say that, that we're hateful and bigoted, it's just, you have to laugh because we are, you know, on the front lines talking about this stuff in, in safeguarding the bodies of trans identified mm-hmm. youth. And yeah. so, I mean, yeah, the children, the stuff with children is pretty black and white for me. You know, you just, you don't do it to children, you know, adult, is a different story electing to have this and that medical, you know, invasive irreversible procedures. But with the kids, it's just, it's a, it's just don't. Yeah. I mean, for me, something that makes me so sad and just angry is the um, mastectomies that are being performed on teenage girls, like underage girls, young, like as young as 14, I think in the U S that's happening, becoming quite accepted and quite popular. I've, started looking into the local hospitals because I'm really curious and they are doing this and you know, they are, they are proud of it. They are uh, advertising it as a virtuous thing. And it really breaks my heart because what teenage girl doesn't have some negative feelings or discomfort around her breasts and her body that's growing. And to tell them that it will help to actually remove them as, as someone in the medical world, what would you say to a young woman? It's obviously, it's not, it's going to vary across every single person, but what, what might you say if you had a young, like 14 year old girl who wanted to go through this? I would tell her no matter how hard she tries, she'll never escape her body. She'll never escape being a woman. And that, yes, being a woman is hard. It is hard. We are part of the same sex class. We, we, we suffer in ways that our oppressor sex class does not. You know, it, it's still worth staying in. And, and, and that she really actually doesn't have a choice. You know, I, I think the, the whole conversation around to do it or not to do it is almost a mute point because no amount of surgery can can make a woman a man and and so i think i don't know it's it's really hard to talk to children about this because you know they they can't and i consider a 14 year old a, a child you know the you know say early teen but you can't fathom that kind of longevity of you know maybe i'll want to use these breasts to feed my children or maybe I shouldn't remove healthy organs, you know, parts of my bodies and tissues, you know, so. Do you um, think that the, because I, I keep hearing this over and over again from, from people who call themselves feminists, that it's really bad that like adult women have a, have a hard time getting sterilized when they want to be sterilized. And furthermore, that children who want to undergo these procedures are being told that they're going that they might be sterilized people are saying like how can they prevent them from getting it just because it's going to sterilize them they're acting as if that's oppressive like that's something that's forcing women to be baby makers so i think people fall into that they're like well i don't believe women should have to be baby makers so i believe they should be allowed to be sterilized but it's obviously a completely different thing when you're an adult versus when you're a child um and they're sterilizing these kids who are 
a lot of them are, are gay kids or they would have grown up to be gay or they're gender non-conforming and this is all part of that big pharma so let's talk a little bit more about that because i think that's a big question on everyone's mind is like who is making the money off of this what is going on with the profit here so this is a yeah i'm glad you brought this up because I mean, Jennifer Bilek is the woman who has, did, I think, done the most writing and research on, on the money. And it, it, I think that, well, first of all, the, the, yeah, the kind of the double, what you're speaking to is kind of the double standard for, you know, being women to get, hard, for, being difficult for women to get sterilized, which I also have a big critique about, you know, I, I, I'm not saying they shouldn't be able to, but I think it's worth spending time thinking about why we live in a world where women fear um, our bodies, mm -hmm. right? And why is it, I guess, feminist to reject, like you're saying, those reproductive parts of ourselves? Does that mean those parts actually are dirty and bad and lowly compared to men? Like if we're accepting? Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. And they're not, it, it can't be, they can't, our reproductive system isn't a compartment of our body. It is, it, it makes up our entire, it relates to every single part of us. Our mood, our digestive system, our spirituality, I mean, it, 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 it goes beyond the function of, of bleeding, you know, once a cycle. Yeah. So I think this, yeah, I think it's extremely misogynistic to think that it can be turned off mm -hmm. or plucked out and then there not to be consequences. So, um, you know, I, again, and I, and I do think women should be able to, to get sterilized should they want that, but that's not how most steriliz sterilizations go. Uh, most, you know, the women who are being sterilized are being targeted because of their socioeconomic class, mm. right? The, the, it's a kind of eugenics, you know, it's, it's, there's yes, there are the some women who, of their own volition, choose to be sterilized. But sterilization is used as a kind of violence against women, right? Mm -hmm. it, it is. I see it as very much part of an anti-natalist movement, which is you know that that you know it's selfish and wrong for women to even have babies. You know this this kind of. Um, really anti-woman, anti-mother stance, which some radical feminists are on board with. There, there's quite also a spectrum within radical feminism um, when it comes to pro-natalist versus anti-natalist um, kind of mm -hmm. agendas. So um, I think the targeting of children and the money is, I mean, I mean, once you go after kids, I mean, the fact that, 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 we've been able to normalize castrating children and neutering children. I mean, I, can you go any further other than like actually killing them? I mean, what's the next step? I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's really frightening. So I think that a lot of what's happening with, with kind of the kind of the pharma takeover is, just industry, like profit, as Jennifer Bilek talks about, you know, I think between 2020 and 2026, the projected um, uh, 
profit for sex surgeries alone is $1.5 billion. Wow. That's only the sex reassignments. That doesn't include um, trans acting agencies, trans modeling agencies, all trans propaganda. Um, Things that are clothing lines. Teaching you how to how to act educational program opposite sex is that is that when you like trans model it what what is that no so trans modeling agencies are agencies um that exclusively represent trans identified adolescents and young adults and so there's a kind of kind of romanticizing glorification Mm -hmm. and it's another industry that's making a ton of money off them Yes. Okay. Yeah. And you see this. I mean, now nearly every Netflix show has an, a nod to a transgender character. You know, I used to watch the show called Transparent, which was on Amazon. Um, I, it was a really well done show, like in terms of like production and plot line, but it was, it was just nonstop trans propaganda and it did really, really well. Um, and so, yeah, there's a huge just industry in kind of appropriating what is truly the most like the the biggest like self hate campaign, you know, ever into this pseudo civil rights cause. Um, So, yeah, I mean, most of the the kind of the white men, male billionaires who are funding this and lobbying for all of this um, are self-proclaimed transhumanists. So, the connection there that, that Jennifer Violet goes into in depth is the is the um, the the purpose of trans ideology. I think fundamentally is to create disconnection from our physical fleshy selves. Mm-hmm. Right? It, it promotes the idea that we could have a wrong body yeah. um, that we need to be fixed. That we're just that we're just wrong that there are certain people who are just mismatched and wrong and so leave it to big pharma to fix them um and so yeah i think i think when you can effectively compel someone to just hate themselves to that degree and and dissociate you know, we're in, we're in big trouble. I mean, that's like 101 for groom, like predators, groom, vulnerable, insecure, dissociated children and and women. Like that's, 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 that's ideal for any kind of predator, whether it's a pharmaceutical predator or a male, you know, street predator, or, you know, a family member who's, you know, abusive. That is what you need. You need someone who's insecure. You need someone who's vulnerable and who, is effectively already starting to dissociate. Um, and so, yeah, I think what we're seeing just on a mass scale is just a lot of grooming um, and trauma responses too. I mean, I think a lot of these cases with the young women are a response to rape and trauma, right? Again, specific to our sex class, wanting to, to opt out. Yeah, and and everyone around around them feeding them the idea that that it, that they can, and that they mm-hmm. should, and that it's courageous to opt out of your sex class. Yeah, yeah. Um, and by the way, you mentioned forced sterilization, so I just wanted to 
point out in case people listening don't know, we just had this big news story in the US about women on the border who are being detained, migrant women who are mm. being forcibly sterilized. Um, yeah. It was a huge story, but it kind of disappeared quickly. So yeah, I just wanted to give an example of how very real and uh, what an atrocity that is. Um, and then now I kind of want to get into more about some of the work that you're doing right now. So I've heard a lot of uh, a lot of comments over the past few years about consciousness raising and how maybe we need to bring it back. I had a guest on my show a while back named Dr. Harriet Fraud, and she um, is a hypnotherapist, I believe, and she calls herself one of the founding mothers of the women's liberation movement back in the 1960s. And um, she was very emphatic that we need to bring back consciousness raising. And um, you have these groups that you do that you kind of just launched. I thought of it maybe as consciousness raising. Is that accurate? And tell us about uh, the liberal feminist anonymous that you're doing. Yeah, it's absolutely consciousness raising. Uh, consciousness raising. That's so funny. I'm also a hypnotist. Um, I, I want to look up the woman that that, that you had on your show. Oh, she's That's really like cool. An awesome, an awesome episode. Yeah. So the consciousness. It's absolutely consciousness raising. Um, women coming together, talking about the issues that are relevant to us and what is going on in our lives. Like it really is the as simple as gathering women with snacks in circle and talking. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, Carol Downer is one of the founders of the self-help movement where, you know, which is kind of one step further where, um, you know, women were looking at each other's cervixes with, you know, speculums and kind of discovering their, their bodies and their anatomy. But yeah, the consciousness raising kind of style groups that I'm, I'm doing now, um, was really a response to the confusion that I was seeing happening and the kind of silencing, um, and just woman after woman coming to me saying that they were afraid to speak out and that they're confused and they don't know what to do and that everyone in their doula training will think that they're, you know, a hateful bitch. And um, what I, so, so I created this eight week series that essentially detangles what is happening. So it kind of goes into a history of how we got here um, and what are, what are the kind of inner workings of this? You know, I, I'm not afraid to use the word agenda. I think ag the word agenda and agendas are extremely important to be using now um, because what we're saying is quite an orchestrated takeover. You know, it, 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 you don't have to be a self-proclaimed conspiracy theorist to see what's happening. You know, it's, it's quite systematic. And so um, we're seeing this kind of coordination of corporations, you know, like Tampax, for example, you know, start to use gender neutral language. And so it's happening on every front. So the, um, the series, you know, in the series, we untangle trans ideology, prostitution, pornography. Uh, we get into surrogacy as well. And we kind of connect the dots um, as to how they are, have, have really become tenants of, of liberal feminism, kind of the normalization of those, of those um, industries, really. And, um, yeah, we do, you know, we're going to be getting into some, um, direct action stuff too. And now I've just created the private virtual community, which will be a continuation of the eight week series. So anyone who does the eight week series will then go into the 
virtual private community um, for kind of ongoing support. You know, I also offer just general support calls because just of how heavy all of this is. Um, and I've been in this stuff for about, you know, two, two and a half years, um, kind of awake. And I still get overwhelmed with the amount of information and kind of disturbing nature of, of what is occurring. And so um, you can think of me as a kind of also hand holder mm. uh, for women as they kind of step into the, the unveiling of, of what is, is happening and the seriousness of what is happening. And so um, we do a lot of storytelling too, sharing. Uh, and, and, you know, some of the feedback that I've gotten from, the women has just been, it's been incredible to, to know that they're not alone. You know, I think the divisiveness of, of trans ideology is that it, it is kind of, people think that it's, it's only happening to them or in their friend group or in their doula training, but it is, as soon as you zoom out, um, it's almost like a sigh of relief to see like, you know, well, it's scary that it's happening on a global scale, but also to know that it's not specific to your kind of bubble. Yeah. What are some of the emotions that are coming up? What are the reactions? What does it feel like for you and for the other women? I think the, the most, the most notable reaction that I, that from one woman was just a level of overwhelm watching some of our guest speakers speak truth. Um, I think for women who are used to and have been conditioned to, I think, to some degree that the way that we all have been conditioned. It's yeah, it's it can um, be really confronting to see a woman stepping into her power and into her authority because it's a mirror, you know, as to what is happening within ourselves. Like, what is the level of self betrayal happening? Right? What is the level of silencing that we are that we are complicit in? Right. Um, and so there's, there have been a couple of responses like that. And then I had one woman uh, who kind of came out to her best friend about being in this eight week series and questioning trans ideology and really being concerned about female erasure. And her friend was like, I have been too. I've been questioning, you know, I've been questioning it too. And so again, the divisiveness around thinking that we're the only ones and that no one else is seeing it. You know, I think, again, the most powerful thing we can do is really give voice to what is happening, acknowledging that, that there are absolutely consequences and those consequences vary based on, you know, our jobs and our schooling and our, you know, our, you know, our livelihoods. I, I get that mm -hmm. women are scared to yeah. lose their livelihoods, rightfully so. Um, but, uh, at this point, I really don't think we can afford not to. Why do you think that? I mean, what's what's gotten to such a point for you? What's the breaking point? Like, why why are you ready to put yourself on the line for this? Well, I, I think losing nearly all my friends was mm. probably um, the breaking point for me, which was just like, if this if this controversy if this ideology can do that if this ideology has the power to do that to pit us against each other in the way that it has it, it's bad i mean it is bad so i think that for me i mean i've never really had an issue with like stepping out and 
doing things that people don't agree with or you know i mean i was the one the one girl who went to art school you know when i was in middle school i mean like that's a silly example but i've never really been it's never really been a factor for me in, in caring about what other people think um it's certainly heartbreaking to lose friends lifelong you know sister women i considered sisters but I don't have time to worry about that anymore. Like we have bigger issues and I, and I do have faith that in the next five, 10 years, more women are going to wake up to what is happening. You know, the systematic erosion of our sex based rights, it, you know, and if it has to get really, really personal for someone to realize that, then so be it. But this, this ideology, as you know, it, it is everywhere and it touches everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think people don't realize the implicate. I mean, they don't realize that people are getting fired for talking about this. They don't realize the social implications because that's a really important piece of this is the the losing friends and the reputation impacts from speaking out about this. Um, but do you see any possibility of some of those friends like Gaining awareness in the next few years, do you think it would ever be possible that they would come back to you and say, like, Isabella, I'm sorry, and I see things differently now? I, I sure hope so. Um, I, I mean, I, I do, but, but then I speak to, you know, I have this one, I have, I have a lot of amazing friends now, um, but one in particular, you know, said to me, she reminded me that in the 70s, that's what radical feminists thought when they, you know, started to expose porn. They thought as soon as everyone knows the kind of mutilation and denigration that happens in porn, porn will stop. And I mean, look at where we are now. Porn hasn't stopped. You know, it's it's, it's more rampant than, than ever. And don't get me started on the the sissy hypno porn, you know, it's, 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 it's gone beyond anyone's wildest imagination, you know, beyond a kind of a playboy magazine, you know, it's, yeah. so I, I don't, I, so I, I am hopeful. And then also I think, yeah, just the kind of denial that, that, you know, as Andrew Dorkin says that we're, that I think women are in a kind of denial as to how much we are truly hated in society, yeah. you know, and, and I don't hate myself and the women who I'm surrounded with certainly don't hate themselves. And so, you know, I, I do think we have agency, um, but I, I don't know. I guess we'll have to see. And, and I'm, I'm new at this. You know, I'm, I'm only two and a half years into even, you know, calling myself a radical feminist. Um, okay. And um, can you just quickly explain, like, what is sissy hypnoporn? So sissy hypnoporn is a subgenre of pornography that... Um, is essentially mind control. It's a kind of hypnosis. It's, a, it's, it, it's similar to um, Clockwork Orange in that the imagery is um, 
really abrupt and interslice, and it's really hard at the beginning to understand what's going on. So um, the imagery is quite uh, erratic and also rapid. So you'll have like a light image and a dark image, a violent image, um, and then like a loving image. Like it, 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 it's really, it's really hypnotic. Um, and there's also certain tracks. I haven't listened to the tracks um, specifically, but I, I know that some of the over, some of the audio overlay in the pornography is is straight up hypnosis. And I, I know this because I'm a hypnotist and I understand confusion techniques and induction methods in order to access the conscious mind. And so, um, and then who is it aimed at? Like who's watching it? What's it's, it's targeted at men. So it, it's just targeted at straight men. So it starts off normal. So a guy who stumbles into it, you know, might have a fetish for like, you know, wearing heels or something. Um, but it spirals. It, it, it starts off normal-ish. And when I say normal, I mean just like standard disgusting porn. And then it spirals into um, you actually don't like your penis. You don't want your penis. You don't need your penis. Um, the man will be like getting a, it will be like the camera will be from the point of view of getting a blowjob and then he'll be giving the blowjob as the, the woman. So it, it kind of goes back and forth, um, to kind of skew kind of who is the, uh, the object of, of the film or who is the, the one receiving the pleasure. Mm-hmm. So is that tied in with, um, autogynophilia? Yeah, the that, a, that a straight man has that of, of himself as a woman and of being perceived as a woman. Yeah, it is similar. Um, I, I'm not an expert on autogynephilia, but yeah, it does seem to be kind of st- that that is exactly, I think, the, mm-hmm. the, the kind of prototype. But it's interesting because with sissy hypnoporn, men are going into it never even considering that they might be trans and getting addicted to it and then coming out as trans. Okay. And so I interviewed a woman um, who was the ex-wife of a man who this happened to. Okay. He, he got into, he got addicted to hyp- hypnosissy porn, then got physically violent, choked her, um, was you know, incredibly abusive and then came out as trans you know, so the autogynephilic thing, it's like, chick, I don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg. You know, is it that some women, uh, is, it, is it that some men, you know, are kind of more inclined to fetishize women and, you know, get off to the thought of being women without ever kind of looking at that kind of imagery? Or is it that that imagery then kind of feeds into the fetish and or is there a third category you know of men that have absolutely no interest in dressing up as women and have never been turned on by the idea of being a woman that are then literally hypnotized by this incredibly incredibly powerful propaganda yeah. you know because pornography is pr- propaganda i mean you're you're anchoring you're taking an image and you're anchoring it to a chemical reaction in the body, you know, orgasm. You're anchoring, 
you can anchor, you know, and that's, that's a really powerful thing to do. It's not just like reading a book, right? You are, you're, you're reading something and listening and watching something and then getting off so that those two things become uh, one, you know? And so there are these forums of men that, you know, say that they can no longer get off without to see hypno porn and this is the case for lots of porn just generally a lot of men can't get off without porn and have erectile dysfunction porn induced erectile dysfunction or can't get off you know, can't have sex with a woman that has pubic hair you know i mean it's, it's absurd right because they've been they've literally the, the anchor the, the act of ejaculation is is so um tied to viewing whatever has been previously viewed whether it's mutilation or hypnosissy porn or you know some obscure kind of fetish it's porn kills love i mean i think we would agree it porn porn kills love um porn kills sex there's this great quote from gail dines who's a professor she's she calls herself i think a marxist radical feminist and um or maybe a marxist feminist i'm not sure but she um says that porn is to sex what mcdonald's is to food I think that's pretty much. She also says that porn is the intersection of capitalism and patriarchy, which I think mm. really brings us back to the profit motive. So um, that also brings us back to the whole choice feminism. And I think you've been really eloquent on that. Um, how do you see this playing out today? I think in my circles, probably the the birth control is the biggest one. I think, you know, um, it comes up with surrogacy as well you know the idea that a woman could choose to rent out her womb um that it would be a choice to lease her body to sell her baby essentially um uh, that that comes up a lot in, in kind of my circles just because my like history with birth and, and fertility um and I'm, I'm really just getting kind of more um I guess, versed with, with prostitution mm. um, and really listening to the stories of um, trafficked women, survi like survivors of, of, of child prostitutes, right? That's, like, that's the, the trajectory. The, the, the prostitutes are coming from a history of, you know, the 9% of prostitutes are coming from a history of, child prostitution, abuse, and trauma, you know, that's the, the pathway to become a prostitute, right? This kind of anomaly, white, upper middle class woman who chooses to be a webcam girl, like, right. that's not what we're talking right. about. Right, the happy hooker and myth. The happy hooker myth, yeah. And it's like, I, I really credit, um, Mary Lou Singleton talks about this, um, in relation to surrogacy, you know, what about the surrogates who have money and they choose to do this because they want to gift this family a baby, you know, she, 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 she kind of challenges that and says, you know, if you are a woman who has the option to not starve, choose better, choose better, right? Because that decision affects all of us. You know, and, and I don't blame a woman who's choosing between feeding her children and, you know, like, having sex with a stranger. Of course, of course she's going to fuck a stranger, like, obviously. 
but to kind of use this anomaly, this kind of unicorn event, the, it's just, no, it doesn't work. And, and, and if that's the example someone's going to bring up, then like, let's talk about that and let's hold her accountable. You know, and it's, it's like, it's not a sustainable, for obvious reasons, sex work and surrogacy are not sustainable careers. Yeah. They're the, your only, eggs. the only career where, uh, as you gain more experience, your value goes down. That's a great point. Yeah. I didn't think of that. I've read that. So, yeah. And especially now with the economy going down the toilet, it's like more and more women are going to be turning to this. And you're seeing, we're seeing this rise with only fans, this like homemade mm-hmm. porn and girls are doing it as soon as they turn 18 I get it on one hand like they are young women who've sort of just learned that they have this capital their body their sex appeal and they're also being told by the society that it's actually really great if they use that to make money so listen I feel like we could just keep talking for another hour it's really interesting hearing from you um one thing that I kind of ask a lot of my guests at the end is like, what are some books that you recommend for people to read to learn more about all these things? I think the, the biggest book, the, the book on my mind right now is um, in, in regards to choice feminism. <laughs> so bad. They're like, the, choice feminism. To, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think, um, I think, you know, with the election, there is a lot of talk of Planned Parenthood, it, what, what it means to kind of um, lose Planned Parenthood. And I think one of the big aha moments also that I had was just learning the history of Planned Parenthood in, in, in relation to the eugenics movement and uh, forced sterilization. And now we know, you know, that Planned Parenthood is um, the main offender for, um, dispersing dispensing puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones to minors and so for anyone who's wondering like what about abortion or like what will we do without Planned Parenthood you know um a I would you know number a I would say you know their abortion rates are have been on the decline for about five years now which is why they tapped into the hormone replacement therapy market and pharmaceutical birth control has also been on the decline. So Planned Parenthood isn't even like the mecca of abortions, right? Their, their abortion rates are going down. And second of all, um, like women's health in women's hands, right? Women have been performing self-abortion, herbal abortion, DIY, you know, menstrual extraction since the beginning of time. And so the book that I would recommend is a book called Natural Liberty, which it just emphasizes again, putting women's health in women's hands and instead of outsourcing our authority constantly and an abortion doesn't have to be a medical event. It really doesn't. And the more that, that women, you know, have access to fertility awareness method and learning our bio signs, the earlier we can detect pregnancy and the, um, the more available, herbal release and menstrual extraction become to us, right? So much so that we don't have to get a medical abortion, which is really, really invasive um, for the body. And so um, I'm absolutely pro-choice and I would be glad to see Planned Parenthood disappear tomorrow. Mm. At this point, I'm um, 
willing to trade, you know, like I'm willing to give up abortion there um, than to have them continue what they're doing to children. Yeah. And I just read, um, I'm going to have to find the source for this and like put it up uh, when I upload the podcast, but I just read that you can, as a teen, walk into Planned Parenthood, say that you are a trans man and walk out with testosterone same day. Do you yeah. know if that's true? Absolutely. Oh my gosh, this has been tested too. Like you could be like a 40 year old woman and do it too. It's not just t- like any, yeah, any, I mean, obviously it's most concerning for minors, but yeah, pretty much anyone can walk in there and say they're a trans man and get testosterone. Um, I don't know if you've already talked about this on, on your podcast, but um, Irreversible Damage, Abigail Schreier's book is yeah, phenomenal. Yeah, it keeps coming up. Yeah. Goes into all of this. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and then anyone who wants to learn fertility awareness method, I would recommend getting a book called Taking Charge of Your Fertility by Tony Weschler. Um, and then I have some information also about fertility awareness on, on my site. And I, I still do, I do still do some coaching um, for that as well. But um, And can people, I'm going to put all your uh, links up and can people still sign up if people are listening, women who want to sign up for the um, Liberal Feminist Anonymous? Absolutely. The, so the next round um, starts January 5th. It's eight weeks. So January 5th to February 23rd. Um, and so the women who take the eight-week series get to just join the, the virtual community. Um, but if a woman is listening and is already kind of feels confident in her stance with trans ideology, prostitution, pornography, and surrogacy, then she can also just join the private virtual community where we are sharing resources and having regular Zoom calls and um, really just being in solidarity together and, and moving towards more direct action work. I think you know the eight-week series is very much like educational, um, kind of bringing everyone up to speed on, on what has happened and, and where we are now. And then, you know, it begs the question kind of, well, what's next? And so that's why I created the, the private community to, to have a space to be able to do that and to organize because we've never been in this situation before, you know, there's, there's no roadmap. And so we're kind of making it up as we go along and it's, it's scary, but I think, I think, yeah, I think the biggest thing right now will just be to, um, be better activists, activists and organizers. Fantastic. Well, thank you. You've given us a lot to think about. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to connect.